Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, guests, and welcome to the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, and I'm here today with my guest, Dr. Rabbi Dr. Aubrey Glazer. We will be discussing his book, Mystical Vertigo, Contemporary Kabbalistic Hebrew Poetry, Dancing Over the Divide, published in 2013 by Academic Studies Press. Aubrey, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. My pleasure, Ari. Thank you for this invitation to uh, explore something that I'm deeply passionate about, and I appreciate your interest in thorough reading. Thank you. I'm touched to be with you today. Um, To begin, what inspired you to write this book? My lifelong passion remains Hebrew poetry, and I've always felt especially when I was doing my doctoral work, but also even when I was a child mesmerized by the alphabet of the Aleph all the way to through to the Tav of the, of the Hebrew letters, I've always been mesmerized by the experience of the words and the letters and how that allows for and opens one to um, what I've learned is, is really a mystical experience. And so I've always found that my love of Hebrew poetry has never really been able to be in conversation with my love for Jewish mysticism and Jewish philosophy. So I tried to write humbly a book that I felt was missing on the uh, the Jewish bookshelf for uh, all readers. And I hope that uh, I have been able to do that. It feels like I, I wrote it eons ago, but it's something that's so close to my heart because of the relationship for me to language, one that is uh, is so powerful and, and always alive. I feel like uh, it, it's something that just emerged in, in this moment. Thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, can you kindly tell us about yourself autobiographically? Sure. My journey is a, a circuitous one to the the place in which I stand. So I'll tell you the 
the short version of the story. And it touches on, on Hebrew in a few of those places. And I, I think it's important to share that. When I told my parents I wanted to enter into the rabbinate to become a rabbi, they said to me, what took you so long? And that took me backwards and forwards in time because flashback, uh, when I was in grade three in yeshiva day school, I encountered the words of the traditional prayer in Hebrew uh, on the page before me. And I had a, an opportunity to be able to design a cover for my, my siddur, my prayer book in Hebrew. And uh, the design along with the letters was something that uh, already in grade three said to me that I wanted to do something with this connection with the letters and with the words of prayer and to embody that in some way and, and told my parents when I was in grade three, I want to become a rabbi. And then uh, I forgot about it, proceeded to forget about it for uh, a number of years. And by the time it came for the celebration of my bar mitzvah, I decided that I wanted to have that in Eretz Yisrael in the Holy Land. They said, where? At the Kotel, at the Western Wall? I said, no, on Masada. And that climb up the snake trail for me was a, a kind of emblematic excavation of myself uh, that I went through uh, many times afterwards, as uh, Michel Foucault would, would suggest, we're always going through an archaeology of knowledge. And so that archaeology for me really was uh, implanted on uh, Masada when I was 13. And I went through a series of circuitous routes to get back to that place where I would be able to stand with uh, this sacred language on a sacred land and with uh, the sacred stories of my people. And that led me both through um, art school, it led me through architecture, it led me to uh, ultimately go into filmmaking and then uh, to stand at the crossroads and say, should I continue on making films for CBC's Canadian Reflections as I did or go into the rabbinate? And that was when I decided that this, the uh, the answer was clear. I wanted to go into the rabbinate because I wanted to tell um, our people's stories. And that sacred act of storytelling for me is something that still remains with me to this day. And it also led me after ordination to come back to my alma mater, the University of Toronto at the Center for the Study of Religion and study what is the, in a sense, the, um, the topic of this book, that confluence, that bridge uh, over the divide between Jewish mysticism and Hebrew poetry. And so um, when I completed my PhD, which was my first uh, published book called Contemporary um, Mystical Hebrew Poetry, this in many ways is, is an extension of that book. Uh, that is to say, Mystical Vertigo is an extension of that first book. And on a nutshell, sort of traveling quickly through space and time, that's, uh, that's part of my, a major thrust of my story and, and how it is that I'm writing in this, uh, in this interstitial space between Hebrew poetry and Jewish mysticism, which I call in a fancy way Hebrew hermeneutics. That is to say, what are the ways that Hebrew texts, whether they are um, traditional liturgy, mysticism, or, or anything in between, including Hebrew poetry, how do these texts make uh, their meanings evident? And how do you work through meaning making in the text? In light of what you've alluded to about Hebrew hermeneutics, how does your book contribute to contemporary literary studies and literary theory? I hope that it not only uh, complicates the narrative as my friend and colleague Mark Dollinger speaks about in his work um, in Jewish history and politics, but I hope that it also 
um, bumps up the level of sophistication um, that people expect from the analysis of Hebrew poetry. One of the things that really disturbed me or, or inspired me, I guess, or awakened me to, to do this work and to call it hermeneutics, which is a complicated term, is that while I was doing my graduate work in the Center for the Study of Religion, um, and specifically looking at the philosophy of religion, I was blown away by the level of theoretical sophistication of both uh, German uh, hermeneutics as well as French hermeneutics. And I felt that that was something that already existed or could be uncovered within the study of Hebrew poetry. And in many ways, the unwritten part of this the story is that I wanted to be able to create, for better and for worse, a, a hermeneutical approach to Hebrew that was as sophisticated as and spoke to the issues with the same kind of urgency uh, with which uh, Martin Heidegger um, in his German hermeneutics that really changed the face of 20th century philosophy and, and uh, poetical studies, the way that he brought his own sophistication to um, and his, his lens uh, of reading philosophically the, the German poetry uh, of Holderlin, um, notwithstanding all of the attendant problems of uh, Heidegger's philosophy, which I did not want to inherit or nor would I justify in, in terms of his sympathies for and philosophical justification of Nazism. But I felt that the 20th century had gone through a rupture and that it was really important for Hebrew hermeneutics to emerge from the ashes of Auschwitz. And that was uh, a big part of why I think this does contribute to both the study of, of Hebrew Belletra as well as Israel studies. What assumptions about contemporary Israel does your book challenge? The assumptions that were being challenged back in 2013, I would have to say are beautifully uh, brought up again for, for new challenges and new articulations that I probably would have benefited from in the, the recent book of Micha Goodman called The Wandering Jew in English. And there, what he does um, in 2021 is something I was trying to do in 2013, but didn't necessarily have all the language for um, at my disposal. And what I was really trying to, to challenge and to do was, first of all, to challenge Israeli identity. And the, 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 the book behind the book that I wrote is also an exploration really of one term in Jewish mysticism, uh, maybe two. And I was challenging the assumptions that you have to be a scholar of Jewish mysticism to appreciate the cultural uh, relevance, both in terms of uh, religiosity and Zionism, of terms that come from Jewish mysticism, that they're somehow divorced from discussions we have about Israeli identity. I've always been uh, moved and impressed by the, the speed, the acceleration uh, at which not only Hebrew language evolves, but the cultural resonances of the most ancient um, concepts and experiences within Hebrew poetry and Jewish mysticism are, are constantly um, emerging and re-emerging as Gershom Shalom remarked in that 1926 letter to Franz Rosenzweig, like a volcano. And the Hebrew language itself is like a volcano. 
And what I'm interested in in doing this work is, as I mentioned, the book behind the book is really an examination of two terms and how to render them into English philosophical language. And the first term is the title of the book, Mystical Vertigo. And that was my way through the lens of French philosopher Alain Badieu of trying to determine a way of translating with the same kind of sophistication that I was seeing and experiencing in the Jewish mystical text, specifically of the medieval text called the Zohar, a term that uh, that spoke of mati velo mati, that is to say, um, in Aramaic, touching but not touching, grasping but not grasping. And what was induced by this experience of the mystic is something that uh, I came up with after reading a lot of Badiou and, and a lot of Zohar, was this sense of mystical vertigo that somehow both the reader uh, as well as the poet and the seeker, when they deeply immerse themselves in this hermeneutical experience of making meaning of a text, they experience, um, the mystical experience is one of, of vertigo, of touching but not touching, of uh, grasping but not grasping, and, and it induces that kind of, uh, of experience. And that was something that for me was important. So that, that's one term that I wanted to explore. And the other term um, was dvekut which is really a, a kind of cleaving, emerging, a, a sense of unio mystico. All those terms that we banty about in English translation are very difficult uh, in terms of being able to have the exactitude of, of actually capturing what goes on within the Hebrew. So if I was to summarize what the, the goal of the book behind the book was, it was really to render in English for an Anglophone audience what is the the operative poetics of two terms, namely mati velo mati, grasping but not grasping, mystical vertigo, and dvekut, which is that mystical experience of merging. How did you choose the selected poets and authors that show up in the book, and did you meet any of them personally? Well, every one of the poets, uh, except for Avraham ben Yitzchak, who uh, was predeceased are all living and writing poetry in Eretz Israel, as well as, I'm, I apologize, Zelda Schneer-Shemishkovsky, also predeceased. Aside from that, Chaviva Pedaya, Yonadav Kaplun, Tamar Elad Applebaum, Binyamin Shvili, Chaya Esther, Shai Tubali, Shulamit, Chava Halevi, Agi Mishol, are all living and writing in Eretz Israel, and 90% of them uh, I, was, uh, I either met in person or have relationships with them, and um, it was part of, it was an extension of my doctoral work, which um, thanks to the generosity of the Bronfman Foundation, when I was a doctoral student, I actually was able through their, uh, a grant, a research grant to go to spend extended time in, in Eretz Yisrael working with uh, and researching the first book that I did and some of the leftover research that I was able to apply in my selection of the poets and their poetry here um, in the act of uh, of researching and being in conversation with them, which obviously is at the, on the one hand exciting, and on the other hand, from the, from an academic perspective, when I told my uh, advisor, the proposed advisor that um, I was pursuing, that I wanted to actually be able to study these living poets, he said to me, they have to be dead for 50 years. And so I did get a chance to... Um, to, as I said, to meet and to speak with all of them, except for Zelda, who I always dream about um, and perhaps meet in the world of uh, 
of, of poetry um, beyond this world, as well as Avraham ben Yitzchak, who to me are two outstanding and very underappreciated Hebrew poets that uh, are also featured in this book. You alluded to uh, Zelda, referring to Zelda Schneerson Mishovsky, and you have a chapter on her in the book. Um, can you? What's the significance of her work, in particular her poem, On That Night? Um, can you elaborate who she is for some of our readers and listeners? Sure, sure. She's, she's just so remarkable. I mean, the thing that's so interesting is if you talk to Israelis and you look through you know, the bookshelf in, in, in any, almost any Israeli's home over the past uh, few decades, I would say you know, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to find a copy of Zelda's poetry. And the fact that she's only known by her, her first name, that's all that it takes to be able to um, refer to her. On a certain level, it alludes to her, her fame uh, within Israel. In the same way that Bialik was only known by his last name or Amichai, there are the certain poets that are just known by their uh, their shorthand. So Zelda was really uh, part and parcel of everyone from someone who was driving a bus to you know um, a soldier uh, to um, to someone who was working a, a, you know a teller at a bank. Anybody and everybody really knew Zelda's poetry and. And loved it because it spoke to the soul of what it means to to be uh, a human being and to be a seeker and to do that in um, this inimitable language that she was able to um, to bring to the Israeli and Hebrew speaking public in a in a way that I think is really really second to none. And part of what drew me to her, and in many ways I I, I would hope to be able to return to her work and maybe this will be part of um, my next book um, when I get back to doing work, more work on uh, Hebrew hermeneutics, I really feel like she's very, very underappreciated. And um, part of what I was mentioning that really draws me to her is this very interesting hybrid identity that she also represents. I was looking at hybrid identity in the opening chapter um, through the lens of a great Hasidic master living um, in Eretz Yisrael, named uh, the Yama Chochma, uh, Ichimer Morgenstern. And he doesn't write poetry, but his work is very poetic. Zelda writes poetry, or wrote poetry, and it was extremely uh, mystical. And though she lived from 1914 uh, and made Aliyah early on um, and, and passed away in 1992, uh, being born in Russia and passing away in Yerushalayim, she also came with a, a really fascinating lineage. She was born in the city um, of uh, Yekalstranalav to the renowned lineage of uh, Shlomo Shalom and Rachel Schneerson. So her father was the great-grandson of the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, known as the Semach Tzedek, and her mother descended from the great Sephardic dynasty uh, of uh, Chen Gracian and traces its roots back to the 11th century um, uh, in Barcelona, where her maternal grandfather's grandfather was Rabbi Elchanan ben Meir, um, who was a student uh, of, uh, of, of great lineage as well. So this, this, this interesting hybridity between having deep Sephardic roots in the mystical tradition, as well as um, roots within uh, the great uh, Chabad lineage, I think positioned her to really 
feel at home in mystical experience and being able to convey that in in just an incredibly remarkable way so she's she's one of a kind i strongly recommend the um the bilingual edition of marcia falk's translation and commentary to zelda's poetry selections of it from her her oeuvre called spectacular difference it's really it's a good place to start but there's much much more work to be done on the 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 luminous legacy of zelda thank you for sharing that Another poet I'd be curious to ask you about is Chaviva Pitaya. Mm -hmm. um, why is she popular with the Israeli novelist Amos Oz and with musicians in Israel such as Meir Benai and Barry Sakharov? Can you describe her work for us and some of her poetry for us? Yes, she's also a remarkable living legend. I would say if anyone within this collection is sort of carrying forward the 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 deep influence within is uh within israel and specifically within the evolution of hebrew culture as a mystical experience it, it must be chaviva and chaviva is astonishing because she's the great granddaughter of yehuda fetaya who's a great iraqi mystic that um made aliyah to eretz israel in the early part of uh, the 20th century and she kind of carries forward his visionary work What's interesting about Fataya is not only that he came from this mystical tradition of the great Iraqi Makubalim, who um, were very concerned with dream interpretation and visions. So she inherited that predilection from him, but he also wrote Piyut. It was very common to write liturgical poetry, as well as um, him writing um, very extensive commentaries on the mystical tradition of Lurianic Kabbalah. So she comes from this fascinating kind of lineage and she also teaches at the Ben-Gurion University in Beersheba in the Department of uh, Sephardic Studies and Jewish History and she recently won the Gershom Shalom Prize in Kabbalah so she is renowned within Israel as a towering force of Jewish philosophy and specifically the Sephardic tradition uh, but is interested in reaching out um, beyond the binaries of uh, Chiloni and Dati, which have for a long time not really applied in Israel. That is to say someone is avowedly secular or avowedly religious. Those terms are part of that hybrid identity that I problematize uh, in the book and I referred to earlier um, relative to Micha Goodman's uh, typologies of the Israeli in The Wandering Jew. Chaviva really exemplifies that, and the fact that she is so appealing to, and, and so much of her music, uh, so much of her poetry has been set to music um, by Barry Sakharov um, and uh, Meir Banai and others, as well as being appreciated by the grand um, authors of, of Israel like Amos Oz, they understand that the work that she's writing is visionary on a whole other level than, um, than many of the poets uh, that are her contemporaries. So the fact that, and she's also involved in a project called Yonat Rechokim. Her brother is a Chazan in the uh, Judeo-Iraqi tradition, and she is the musical advisor, um, and in a, in a sense, the the um, the one who's the expert in piyut, who advises the this this group of the repertoire that they're singing. So it comes from both ancient the, the ancient piyut background, liturgical poetry, which was very much uh, part and parcel of the Sephardic and Mizrahi uh, lineage that she comes from, but it also speaks to 
um, the Israeli hit parade in the radio in a way that um, that, I, that I think really parallels the the kind of massive appeal that that Zelda also had in her time. In light of boundary crossing poets, um, another I'd like to ask you about is Shulamit Chava Halevi. Um, you devote significant attention to her poems, the fifteenth of of Milopotamos and mm -hmm. Strange Fire. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us about her poetry? Shulamit is also a remarkable, remarkable poet, um, and brings to bear her own kind of mystical vision. I was introduced to her work actually when I was in Yerushalayim. Uh, my friend and advisor, Menachem Tzvi Fox, who teaches at the University of Toronto and advised the, um, the bulk of my dissertation in this Hebrew poetry, also introduced me to many of the poets that I have had the, the blessing and the honor of being able to research and to be in conversation with. So. As it, ha as it stands, um, the legend goes, Shulamit Chava Halevi was introduced to me by Tzvi at a, an annual Tuba Av uh, love poetry slam that he would have in his, uh, in his flat in Yerushalayim. So Tuba Av, known as the 50, also known as the 15th of Av, is kind of like Jewish Sadie Hawkins Day. It's described in, uh, in the Mishnah called uh, Tractate Tanit, and it speaks about the choreography uh, the daughters of Jerusalem and the sons of Israel going out into the fields and having a kind of mating ceremony where they would dance and um, and intermingle and uh, and eventually find their their partner. And so, what's emerged in Israel is this interesting kind of unofficial tradition. Not only is it Jewish Sadie Hawkins Day where you're looking for your your partner, uh, but he introduced this um, this great custom of actually getting together with people and reading love poetry. So it was like a love poetry slam. And anyways, he, because of his connections with all these poets in Yerushalayim, he happened to invite Shulamit to come to this particular reading. And of the many, many poems that I could have chosen, Tuba Abmalipotamos is fascinating, as is uh, Strange Fire. And what I find so fascinating about Shulamit's poetry is the not only the, the texture of the mystical visioning that she's able to capture in her mellifluous Hebrew, but also the juxtaposition of different experiences. Um, specifically, Strange Fire deals a lot with the experience of, uh, of Moranos or the Anusim, as she would prefer that they would be called rather than Moranos because it's more of a derogatory term for those converso uh, Jews who were, who were forced to, um, to convert to Christianity on the outside, but remained secret Jews on the inside. Strange Fire is a really, really interesting way into the life of, of a, someone who was an Anus, someone who was compelled to have this, this hybrid identity. And uh, Tuba Melipotamos is another one of her love poems um, in, uh, in the far off uh, Grecian islands. And I just, I love the, the juxtaposition of the Greek and the Hebrew. Um, as well as with the Murano uh, and the, the Anus experience, uh, Jewish Christian. I think she really, she does some remarkable things that are, again, complicating the, the narrative uh, re relating to Hebrew culture and uh, Israeli identity. I would be curious to ask you about the poetry project that you write about in chapter nine, Return the Spirit. Can you yes. contextualize 
this uh, poetry project for us, especially as it provides the background for the poetry of Tamar Elad Applebaum. Can you speak to this project and how this project um, contextualizes her poetry? So Return the Spirit is a loose translation of a journal, but also a, kind of a, a gathering and ongoing workshop that's supported by the Israeli government um, through the, I believe it's through the Minister of Sport and Culture, and it's called Mashiv HaRuach. So Mashiv HaRuach is both the name of the project, it's also the name of the annual journal, it's the name of the workshops that bring all these poets together. And if uh, memory serves me, I believe uh, Elchanan Nir and some other great poets who I have not included in this collection were responsible for bringing uh, that group together. And it just so happens that Tamar Elad Applebaum is one of the, I think, one of the, the foremost poets who is part of this collective and uh, has appeared in many of the Mashiv Haruach uh, journals and the workshops. And she also happens to be a profound uh, young voice of prophetic poetry that is emerging, again, within this hybrid space of not being quite Chiloni, not being quite Dati Leumi in terms of the, um, the work that she's doing with the Rabbanut Yisraelite, but really, from my recollection, I think it was established in the in the early '90s, and there's always been a rotating editorial board. But now, now I recall, I, I think it was actually it originated with Shmuel Klein, with Yoram Nisinovich, uh, Nachum Pechnik, and Elias Cohen was the other poet that I was thinking of, and and they are a remarkably robust group of primarily they wouldn't call themselves Datiliomi or Chiloni. Um, that is to say, they're not national religious, nor are they secular, but there's a new hybrid term that's emerged that I learned by immersing myself in the, the decades-long project of Mashiv HaRuach in their, in their annual journal. They like to see themselves as emunati. That is to say, there's something like spiritualist poets I, would be the best translation that I could give to it. And I think that really points to something fascinating that that really has captured and continues to captivate my attention that's going on throughout this entire book as well as my first book as well as within the pages of Mashiv Haruach um, and really every Elul when there is a, a new release of uh, a surge of, of Hebrew poetry on, on the market because the Hebrew speaking audience and the readership in Israel it has a voracious appetite for new Hebrew poetry and culture and Mashiv Haruch is really one of the great waves within that surge, that oceanic surge of, of creativity that is constantly uh, flowing, ebbing and flowing within, within Israel. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Your book devotes tremendous attention to literary theory, both literary theory drawn out of the mystical poets you describe, as well as the contribution of hermeneutical theory to understanding many of the poets presented. Um, For example, um, you allude to Homi Baba's concept of dissemination with the N midway through dissemination being capitalized. How is the concept of dissemination relevant to thinking about Israeli mystical poetry? In particular, um, what connection does it bear to the poetry of Agi Michol and her mm-hmm. poems Shahida and Transistor Muezzin? So what's interesting about this, these kinds of juxtapositions that I was creating is I was also kind of imagining a conversation between these, these different theorists. Homi Baba really, uh, in many ways, is uh, a, an incredibly important post-colonial theorist. And I can't really imagine ever having a conversation with a Hebrew poet. So I intentionally created a series of juxtapositions and kind of wanted to imagine uh, a kind of what I would call uh, curating curious conversations over coffee. Because I had so many great conversations with these, these Hebrew poets over coffee in the Beit Cafe in, uh, in my time in, in Eretz Israel. So I wanted to, to kind of create these um, these different these different juxtapositions that um, that would not in any way be um, normative or expected, somewhat surprising. And so I can tell by your question that you were obviously surprised by it. Now, dissemination is something that's interesting in the English language. You can't really do in Hebrew. In Hebrew, you have all these different ways of being able to create what are kind of known as collocations of the letters, like mixing up and permutating the letters. It's called siruf otiot. And, um, and that's sort of natural in Hebrew, but you can't make capital and lowercase, right? You really just have, it just depends what script you're using, but it's always, uh, everything is capitalized, so to speak. But what Baba does that I think is really interesting is that he plays with Sirufo Tiot, um, and the word dissemination then also has a capital N with nation. And what he's interested in there um, from a critical perspective is, is the approach of uh, and the understanding of how time and narrative affect the margins 
of the modern nation. I believe I believe that 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 article uh, that became a book he wrote in the '90s, and uh, of course he owes the tip of the hat to Jacques Derrida, who is an Algerian Jew whose modes of hermeneutical interpretation have deeply inspired the work that I'm doing. And um, in many ways, when Baba was writing Dissemination, he tips his hat to, to Derrida, but also says that um, his understanding of the, the nation of time and of his own narrative, his own space within that process of understanding where he fits in or does not fit into uh, the nation that he's a part of, the nation state that he's a part of, is a function of migration and an exile. And I, I think that a lot of what is really interesting and delicious and challenging and provocative, both in the book as well as within Hebrew culture writ large, is the place that the Hebrew poet occupies or hovers or sits or stands in, um, depending on the um, the specific moment and whether the poet is like the prophet that really in many ways stands at the margin of uh, of the modern nation state and is called upon to be able to bring these sacred words that come from uh, the ancient depths that 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 volcano that I was speaking about earlier that whenever a word in Hebrew is used in Lashon Hakodesh it resonates with all of the layers of accretion through space and through time. And what Baba is trying to recover in his own way, uh, I think is already happening within the, the complexities of Hebrew language itself. Now, you could say, you know, Aubrey, why didn't you just choose, for example, to look at the essay, the 1919 essay, I believe, by Chaim Nachman Bialik called Gilui Vakisui Bedlashan, probably one of the most brilliant, underappreciated um, essays, which means revealed and concealed in language. The argument could be made that everything I wanted to do on this project of Hebrew hermeneutics is already contained in Bialik's essay from 1919. And I think that, that probably that's true. I wanted to complicate the narrative. And for whatever reason, I guess because, you know, the story I told you earlier when I was in Kita Gimel in grade three uh, through grade seven, I was studying Bialik. I always felt that even though Bialik's approach to poetry and his renown is second to none, that on a certain level, theorists don't take uh, his work seriously enough outside of the Jewish uh, world of, of Hebrew bel And I wanted to, to go from the outside in and to say, I'm going to look at these theorists, including someone who's a post-colonial theorist uh, like Homi Baba, and bring him back into conversation with Israel studies and with Hebrew poetry to create uh, a more sophisticated and complex and current uh, form of Hebrew hermeneutics. But I, the more that I look back at Bialik's essay from 1919 of Gilui Bikasui I wonder whether um, it's time to return to uncover that genius, maybe to bring him into conversation with Homi Baba. I mean, I love these surreal kind of uh, curious conversations. And so it's a long uh, answer to a very important question, but that to me feels... A lot, um, a lot of the reason why I, I, I went in that direction, and Agi Mishal is a whole other story. I can respond to that if you wish as well. But she's considered uh, by Dan Meron in the preface to Kol Kitve uh, Agi Mishal, she is considered to uh, to be a a prolific poet in her own right at this time. The poems of hers that I chose to include 
within my collection were also very strategically chosen specifically because of the provocative content and the fact that those poems to my recollection were first published within the the the, the what's called the musaf the the supplementary edition to the weekend uh, shabbat paper so Shahida and Transistor Muazin were both featured um, at certain times within the daily paper. And I think that's, again, something that we need to appreciate that is not um, happening at the same level within the Anglophone world. I do realize that there are some supplements on the weekends in different papers across the world in, in English papers where there are poets from time to time who may contribute something. But this is a regular thing that uh, Hebrew readers expect within all of the dailies. So whether it's in Haaretz, whether it's in Mariv, or whether it's in um, even Makor Rishon, there's so many different papers that are available to a reader on Shabbat in Israel. And when you get to the the extra edition, sort of like the supplement, it's, there's always an expectation that there's going to be something in there that is new and fresh that comes from uh, the plethora of Hebrew poets. So um the, the Shahida poem, Woman, Woman Martyr, was actually published after a bombing uh, in a bakery in Bethlehem. And you can just begin to try to imagine the, the collective trauma that is going on um, within the culture at that time. And then for the poet to have the unmitigated audacity to come out so soon after the bombing. And there were a spate of bombings that were, were going on incessantly during the time where she was writing this, where 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 Agi has the again as I said this this kind of audacity to uh, to bring out her poetic vision, um, which is, is so so difficult to imagine, but the poetic voice actually tries to um, to imagine what it must be like to be inside the mind uh, with many screws loose of a uh, of a bomber. Uh, Andalib Takatata, who was uh, one of the um, the many bombers who um, who destroyed and, and took lives as as a homicide bomber in uh, in Israel during this time, I think I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it took place during um, a uh, a rush to the bakery, and uh, it was it was a poem that uh, that really shocked the Israeli public. And, uh, and I think that there's something there that is worth, is worth reflecting on. Why is it that a culture and a, and a democracy within the Middle East is willing to publish a, uh, a provocative poem in, in Hebrew? Um, Mehran calls her the comic Sybil, right? So in a sense, she is both um, dealing with comedy and tragedy in, in one fell swoop with great dark humor and she's willing to look at, with biting irony, with biting irony at this, um, at this, this experience while the, the while the the nation is healing, to readers of Haaretz as they mull over the literary supplement uh, over the Sabbath, what is going on inside the mind of a Shahida? Fascinating. Another hermetical concept that emerges in your book shows up in chapter two when you make reference to the concept of integral divinity. Um, for example, you have a, a passage on page 79, in traversing 
structural stages in the evolution of consciousness from Eloheinu to integral divinity, the degree to which each wave is a critical part of all subsequent waves becomes clearer. Poetry is one of the greatest modes of attunement to this interiority. What do you mean by the evolution from Eloheinu to integral divinity? What is integral divinity in the context of your work? Well, it's something that I was trying to play with in the same way that we saw in English that Homi Baba was playing with letters, uh, all caps and lowercase with uh, dissemination. Here, what I wanted to do was to claim and to adapt uh, integral uh, thinking and integral uh, philosophy of Jean Gebser into uh, conversations uh, about monistic and monotheistic uh, spiritual traditions like Judaism. And part of what I'm suggesting is that the the ancient uh, theomorphic term for God known as El, which is an ancient name for, um, for the one uh, enwrapped in mystery, uh, eventually becomes known as Eloheinu, right? So it becomes part of a, a larger, uh, more expansive tribal understanding of the word God for the Israelite tribe, and then it becomes ours. And so it becomes a, a tribal uh, expression of a particularistic approach to divinity. And what I'm trying to suggest is that there is there are different there are a different series of uh, 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 of kind of stages of evolution in terms of how we understand God in that structure when taken through the lens um, uh, of uh, of integral uh, of integral thinking. And so again, it's another strange conversation, a curious conversation that I wanted to be able to curate. And it really suggests there's an evolution of consciousness, and that there are different stages in the evolution of God. And that is something that has been explored, for example, in Process Theology. Lisa Wartzman has written about that and others as well. But there's a sense in terms of what John Gebser is referring to, that there is a constant process uh, of this evolution uh, of consciousness. And what I wanted to do is to move from the mental to the integral. That is to say, we don't just think about God, but we actually integrate the experience of the divine into our lives as a hermeneutical act. And what happens then is, is as, that, as that integration process begins to happen, uh, I switched and played with the way that the, the word integral is written in English for the viewers just to imagine it's normally spelt capital I and then uh, N-T-E-G-R-A-L. And what you alluded to is that I switched that and played with it in a permutated way and replace the A-L with the capital E-L, referring back to the Hebrew nomination for the divine. And what I'm trying to point to through this play in language is that there is within Hebrew poetry, specifically in Admiel Kozman's work, as well as within Avraham ben Yitzchak that I refer to in that chapter, there is this process of the evolution of consciousness, and it's a dissolution of uh, the tension or the dialectic between um, the ego or world eminence and the experience of, of the transcendent, which is really symbolized by the experience of L. Along these lines, uh, another hermeneutical concept that you 
pay attention to in your book shows up in chapter six. Specifically, what I'm alluding to is the term touching crossed out in strike through. Mm -hmm. um, for example, on page 153, um, when you describe the work of the poet Shai Tuvali, you write as follows. The immediacy of touching presented as, as it regularly is, wading through, touching, crossed out with strike through, still quivers for intimacy. You go on to say it is through such touching, and here touching again is crossed out with strike through, that the God quivering for, int for intimacy can once again be redeemed through mystical vertigo. What is the concept of touching crossed out in a strike through? Um, and can you explain why you present touching in that way? Yeah, it's a great question. And again, it's a way of trying to play with uh, the way that the, the words appear on the page in English as opposed to the playfulness that's going on within the Hebrew. So I mentioned earlier, the book behind this book is really related to two terms and they come to a head right here, especially in Shai Tubali's poetry um, in these poems that I present relating to the term mati velo mati, which means touching but not touching. So in a sense, if you wanna to try to write that down in one word, instead of writing touching but not touching in four words, Jacques Derrida speaks about this uh, erasure in language that's, that's possible. And it's, it's possible to actually be able to strike the word out, but for it to be there and to not be there at the same time. How do you convey that? Um, so I created this touching with the strike through, which is really an English rendering of mati velo mati, touching but not touching in the mystical terminology of the Zohar in Aramaic. And part of what is emerging that you're, that you're also touching on here, no pun intended, is the, the kind of paradoxical uh, tension that I begin to, to play with, especially in Tubali's poetry, but it's throughout the entire book in the sense that if, uh, if we talk about the experience of the Vekut, uh, uh, which is an experience of, in a sense, non-dual consciousness or merging, um, where there's no longer a subject and an object, or even two subjects, then what does that mean in terms of the poet's relationship to God and the experience as we spoke of, uh, of, of El or whatever it is that we attribute as a name uh, for God or for the experience of the infinite and the, and the transcendent? What does that look like in terms of language and how does the mystic and in this case, the Hebrew poet convey that in a form of language that can actually be read and understood in some kind of a cogent way. How does your book's insight into Hebrew and Israeli poetry contribute to the study of Kabbalah as an intellectual academic discipline? My hope is that readers um, within Hebrew studies and Israel studies will be piqued enough by the references to, to Kabbalah, to Jewish mysticism, to go deeper into the original sources and vice versa. My hope is that those who are schooled in the academic study of, as well as the practice of, of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism, which really, uh, interestingly enough, was created as a discipline at the Hebrew University when Gershom Sholem came to found 
the um, the critical study of Kabbalah as a discipline there. So it's no mistake that Hebrew culture and it, and its evolution happens um, in Eretz Israel. What, what I'm hoping is is that the um, the interest will cross fertilize conversations that don't happen often enough. Shalom himself was a poet, but he was a poet in the closet and he didn't write poetry in Hebrew. He wrote his poetry in German. There were other academic scholars of Kabbalah back um, pre-state who also wrote uh, poetry, but most of them didn't write it in Hebrew. They wrote it in their, 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 native, their native tongue in terms of where they emigrated from. Shai, um, Isaiah Tishby, I believe, wrote poetry in Hungarian and Joseph Weiss likely wrote his poetry, I believe, in English. So there were all these great scholars of Kabbalah at the beginning of the 20th century, either being trained by Shalom or, or living in the land of Israel and then going off into the diaspora to teach and to do work. But they were never really in serious conversation with, uh, with poetry. And I want there to be a serious conversation between those two disciplines. And I feel like that's something that's emerging in our own time, in our own day and age. I think also of the, um, the the plethora and the richness of mystical poetry being written today. For example, Eitan Fishbane's new book called Embers of Pilgrimage is an experiment in the English language of trying to render some of these deep concepts in the Hebrew and the Aramaic into a cogent and coherent language of mystical poesis in the English, which I think he very successfully and creatively does. And there are a handful of other poets who were doing that work. So what was not happening already, even in 2013, with as much frequency as I had hoped, is, is already beginning to, to emerge in, in a more prolific and, and, uh, and fertile way. As we bring this interview to a close, I wanted to convey my gratitude to you for your time and for the erudition that went into this book. The final question I'd like to ask you is, what are you working on now? Can you elucidate us on your current research as it's presently unfolding? Sure, I would love to, Ari. And I also want to thank you for your very close reading of a book that's very, very dear to my heart. Uh, I really appreciate your thoughtful questions. I can tell you uh, long-term and short-term what I'm working on. I'm involved in a, a decades-long project in the excavation of a fascinating um, contempt, well, I would call them modern mystical community in Tiberias. Um, and I'm working on the third of seven volumes of the, the writings and the teachings and the practices of this mystical confraternity in Tiberias that was headed by Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk and Avraham HaKohen of Kalisk. It's called From Tiberius with love, and so I'm now working on the um, the Igrot Kodesh, the letters that they wrote back and forth in Hebrew, in the mellifluous Hebrew, to their uh, disciples and colleagues in Eastern Europe from Tiberius, um, where they settled in to make their home uh, uh, in the in the Jewish homeland uh, in 1777. So that's an ongoing project that I'm going to continue to work on. That's that's um, I'm deeply immersed in, and um, more shorter term, it's very likely that I'm going to return to write a sequel to my last book on Leonard Cohen that was called Tangle of Matter and Ghost, and um, probably create a curious conversation 
between Leonard Cohen of Blessed Memory and Bob Dylan and maybe Lou Reed on death and dying practices. I'm very interested in the question of how English uh, poetical uh, lyrics within contemporary music uh, speaks to the, the deeper urgent questions of our own mortality. I'm also interested in that on the Hebrew side, so there'll probably be a companion volume in terms of the, the great Hebrew poets that I love that will speak to that question. But, uh, but right now I seem to be drawn back into this uh, ongoing conversation between Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan. So we'll see, we'll see what emerges, but those are some of the things that are on my, my writing desk right now. Thank you. Uh, what, a, what a busy guy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I appreciate the time you devoted to developing such a remarkable, insightful, creative, and impressive book in Mystical Vertigo. And I'm also extremely grateful for the time you took to talk to me and to our listeners on the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. Thank you. My pleasure, Ari. And uh, all my best wishes to you and to the great work you're doing for the podcast. And I hope that the listeners um, get to expand their horizons. And if you have uh, uh, an opportunity to, uh, to get a copy of the book, I'm sure you'll, you'll find it a provocative read. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, this has been Aubrey Glazer the author of Mystical Vertigo, Contemporary Kabbalistic Poetry, Dancing Over the Divide, published in 2013 by Academic Studies Press. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, with the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.